And Chad specifically asked me to speak on an area that I know you have great interests and I have great interests. That's the area of the church and the state. And as we pursue this election time, all of you I know are probably looking at what is God's will for me. I can tell you after being a professor for almost 20 years that Christians are generally confused how to think about the church and the state. Uh, we let the, unfortunately, too many people let the United States Supreme Court declare what our theology of the state ought to be. And uh, the fact is, is that we need to fix that. And I want to give you a couple of introductory ideas here, and then I want to go into condensing about 100 hours of a three-unit class into 45 minutes, okay? So I'll speak fast, and if you play the tape at half speed, you'll be able to get all of it when you get it. So let me start with, uh, we want to take our minds away from the tyranny of the present. That's number one. We don't want to, just because things are the way they are now, that's not the way they've always been. And, for example, last year we celebrated the 400-year anniversary of the founding of Jamestown when our Puritan pilgrim ancestors came over. Why? To escape the persecution that was going on in Europe. Why did they come here? Because they wanted to found a godly Christian society. They didn't want the government. They didn't want any other person interfering with what they needed to do for Jesus Christ to live for God and to live for family. And so what do they do? They left and started their own country. Now, of course, that evolved from what it was back then to what we have now. And as we consider that, the idea of how it is important to have God involved in government, but particularly the Christian God. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but God actually thinks that Christianity is true, okay? And it's the one true religion. Jesus Christ was absolutely clear on this. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. The apostles made it absolutely clear. And that was absolutely. What do they say? There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus Christ. All of this modern, these modern ideas of pluralism, that there are many ways to God, that's a surprise to God. God is the creator of the universe. In the beginning, God. In the end, God. God made you, and you will have to answer for your life in the end. And good Christians know that. You know, God has given us all a work to do. He has given us all a task to do, and he has given us the way we ought to do it, to live in righteousness and holiness and justice, following our Lord Jesus Christ without exception. That is our goal, and we should not stray for that. And as we consider how the church and the state relate, I hope that what you will do now is forget everything that you have heard about church and state that has come from the United States Supreme Court or from anything else and cogitate a bit on what Scripture says about these things. Because just because it is the way it is now doesn't mean that's the way it ought to be. And our oughts come from God. God alone is the one who's going to give us the way it ought to be. And uh, that's what we should pursue without fail. So I hope that all of you have eternity in your hearts. I hope all of you are thinking about more 
than what's just going on right now. Uh, if you even live to be a hundred, that is a vapor. It is a snap compared to eternity. And what you do for this life is what's going to count for all eternity. So don't think about, more importantly, the temporal things. Yes, they're important. But what's more important is what's going to happen for the rest of eternity and with whom you will spend it and what we're supposed to do to prepare for it. That's why we're here, and that's what we need to focus on. Don't think about living for unbelievers. Don't think about compromising with unbelievers. We absolutely, directly, and immediately follow the Lord God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. We as his creatures. Because, again, God, in the beginning, God. And at the end, all of you are going to stand before God. If you're a believer, you will stand at the judgment seat of Christ and be rewarded according to your works as a believer. If you're an unbeliever, you will stand at the great white throne. But either way, you will go back to God. You will, be, you will face him and you will have to give an account for your life. So this is why any authority that comes must come from God. And that's why when we look at the nature of the church, the nature of law, the nature of the Christian life, all of this has to be based on God's revelation. And that, by the way, that's the premise for this. The Bible's inerrant. It's the word of God, and it's the source for how we live life, ultimately. If you've got some other source, then we'll talk about that later. But right now, I want you to just think about it this way, okay? Go back, back, back in your minds chronologically, and now go back before the creation, what existed? Just say God. Thank you very much. Okay, yeah, God. But not just any God. God is triune. The biblical God, the real God, is three persons who share an undivided, infinite nature, the Trinity. Now, you want to ask, what has God been doing for all eternity? And the answer is this. What he's not doing is sitting around with his hand on his chin, thinking important thoughts. That's the God of the deists and the Unitarians. Why? Because God is only one person. So God's around with his proverbial metaphysical hand on his chin, thinking really important stuff. Okay. What's the biblical God doing? Having an intra-Trinitarian, righteous, loving relationship in perfect harmony between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what's going on between the members of the Godhead. And then there's this little thing called creation, the first gift that God gives us, the gift of existence. We always talk about salvation being the gift of God, but guess what? Before that, God gave you the gift of existing in his image after his likeness, to be able to appreciate beauty, righteousness, morality, to think one important thought, to appreciate one hug, one experience of love. That's something that the lower creation never experiences, and that is a gift of God. In the beginning, God. And of course, we see that God made us in his image after his likeness. And of course, this is all prologue for where we're going. And you get to Genesis 2, and just to summarize the passage, what did God do? He created the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve in it, and what were they doing? They were living in eHarmony.com, right? 29 dimensions of compatibility, no conflict, everything was great. But what happened? Who sinned? Now, again, this is background because as we get to the application in church and state, what we're looking at now is what is the purpose of life? Again, we are here created in the image of God. We're created enough like God 
Genesis 1.26, God made us in his image after his likeness. Not only that he made us enough like himself to be able to experience and understand morality, love, beauty, and righteousness, but the functional image of God. We're supposed to function like God in loving harmony with one another. That's why he designed us. And you may note with Prop 8 on the ballot that God actually had a design for marriage. And that was Adam and Eve, and that they would complement each other. And that would be the highest form of love that we can experience. A man and woman wed together and doing what? Producing children. Producing the rest of the human race, nurturing, loving, mentoring, the same way that God promises us when we're his children. God is the archetype. God is the model for all those relationships. And we're supposed to function that way. And that's the design of human beings to do what? Let me think. What was that? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself, but especially husbands and wives, right? And kids. That's what you're supposed to do. And that's what was going on in the Garden of Eden. People being righteous, obeying righteousness, and living in love and harmony with one another in community. That's God's goal for us. What's the problem? Not everybody wants to be righteous. No, but not everybody wants to love. We have a bunch of selfish people who suppress the righteousness of God. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness, and they go their own way. To the end, that what we see is that everyone does that which is right in their own eyes once they've rejected God. But we see that's the way it's supposed to be. And you might want to note, too, that uh, the- theologically, when we look at the Bible, there's a couple of ways to divide it up. We can look at what's called the order of creation versus the order of redemption. Okay? The order of creation applies to all created things, but particularly us in the image of God. You'll notice that marriage was given before the fall of man. It is part of the order of creation. It is binding on all mankind, that there's a certain way God does marriage. And by the way, to even talk about marriage between a, a, a man and a woman or, or, or a man and a man or a woman and a woman, I mean, that's just messing, that's just playing language games at that point. Marriage, by definition, is between a man and a woman. That's what a marriage is. Just like a triangle has three sides, grass is green, the sky is blue, that's just the way it is. If you want to have something else, you have something else, but don't call it marriage. You can call it all sorts of things, like fornication and sodomy and all sorts of things, but don't call it marriage, because by definition, it's not that. So when we look at these, the purposes of life, I hope we get in our hearts right now that uh, if you don't understand this, I hope you leave with this understanding. All of you will die if the Lord does not come back and rapture us, period. And the death rate has not changed since Adam and Eve. It's one per person. And all of you are going to make it, okay? So that means you need to prepare for that and prepare for what's going to come afterwards. So as we consider... These ideas, of course, what's the problem? We have the fall. The problem, this little thing called the justice of God. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. We know this. Acts 17. Turn in your Bibles with me to Acts 17. God has warned us of punishments. He's warned us of rewards. 
And just a couple of instances here that you need to keep in your hearts and keep in the forefront of your mind is that, A, you're a creature of God. If you're a believer, you're a child of God, but you are accountable to Daddy. And Daddy disciplines his children uh, like good parents do to keep them on the way to growing in righteousness. So what we need to do is be sure that we are doing this God's way. So turn with me to Acts chapter 17. And in the book of Acts... We have Paul preaching to a bunch of pagan philosophers who have believed in all sorts of different ideas. And in Acts 17, after he saw the inscription in verse 23 to, to an unknown God and says, What therefore you worship in ignorance, I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. He made from one every nation and mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of habitation, that they should seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and exist, even as some of your own poets have said, for we of his offspring. Being then the offspring of God, we ought not to think the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day, verse 31, in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. This is the promise of God. Claim it. Okay? He has fixed a time when he will judge the world in righteousness. Nobody wants to claim that promise, right? It's all those prosperity verses we want to claim. But this is true. God is faithful. He keeps all his promises. Promises for judgment, promises for blessing. He is a faithful God. And so when we consider that, what do we have to consider in this fallen world? Fallen man breaks the law of God. And by the way, this is why the Bible says that no man can be justified by the works of the law. You know the passages, uh, Galatians 2, 16 to 21. Why is it no one can be justified by the works of the law? For the same reason, when you run a red light, you can't go to the judge and, and tell them, say, but your honor, I went through 10 green ones right before that and 10 green ones right afterwards. That's not the way law works. The expectation is you keep all the law all the time if you want to participate in peace, freedom, and harmony in in the community you live in. That's the law. And that's why you can't go to someone and say, yeah, honey, you're ugly, your cooking stinks, but you got to take me back because I took out the trash. Yeah, but see, that's the logic of the work system world. It's only by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The one whom we've offended, God himself, maker of heaven and earth, was willing to bear our penalty for us by never ceasing to be God, becoming a man, living a perfect life, keeping the law in our place, and dying on the cross to take our penalty. And he proved that he satisfied God's wrath by raising from the dead. And what's it up to us? Do you want God? Do you desire God? Are you seeking God? If you, if you are, God's already done the work for you. Therefore, it's a gift. God's already borne the penalty for you. So come to him and cash that check of grace. 
By grace, you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, period. Forgiveness and restoration only comes through the offended party bearing the burden and by the what the offending party repenting, recognizing what's loving and righteous. And then when you do that and acknowledge it, two can walk together as one again. And we're right back to eHarmony.com, right? That's how two can walk together. And that's the purpose is for us to walk with God again, like we did in the garden and to walk with each other in love and righteousness. Anything that gets in the way of that is ungodly and it's sinful. So how do we achieve that in a fallen world? Well, obviously you go become a Buddhist, uh, you know, a Muslim, Zoroaster, and then if you work hard enough, it'll all work out just fine, right? Just say no. Okay, yeah, no. Yeah, you're going to write, let me write this down. No, no, don't write that down, okay? Yeah, definitely not. When we look at the fallen world, we understand that God has given us two routes, okay? Two routes, not two ways of salvation, but two ways to restrain evil. Because we live in a world that is fallen and that is evil. And until the kingdoms of the earth become the kingdoms of our Lord, when Jesus Christ comes back and he is the king of kings and Lord of lords, and he will, he has been long suffering. He has withheld his kingly wrath, but he will come back and implement it. I mean, Revelation 19, treading the winepress of the wrath of God. This is what's coming right now is the parenthesis period. We're here. Anybody wants grace can have it. At some point, there's going to be a cutoff date. To make us really righteous so that we're fit to live the way that God made us, the best way is the church. Now, what does the church do? Now, the church does law and gospel. As you saw in your handout, you see that uh, you know, the, the, the task God gave the church is to make people really righteous. How do we do that? Pretty simple. We preach the good news, which I just said. By grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. Salvation is a gift of God. Now, what's the problem, though? The problem is, is that when you get saved, you are justified by faith. You're declared righteous before God. John 1, 12, as many as received him, to them, they have the right to become children of God. You are adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High, and God will take care of you and mentor you and love you and work his way with you to make you righteous. Now, here's the problem. When you all got saved, you, you noticed there was no refat format button on your mind. They didn't hit the reformat button, uninstall Microsoft Satan 6.66, and then install Microsoft God 7.77, right? You're saying, gosh, why do I still sin? Because you have a whole bunch of yucky stuff that you believe, sinful stuff, false, idea, false ideas of what makes you happy and what brings blessing in life. And what do you need to do? Romans 12, 1 and 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. John 8, 32, know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, he says, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. You, when you became a Christian, you had to repent, change your mind, make a choice to change your mind to follow God. And every day and every time in your life, you got a problem with sin. What do you have to do? Keep on repenting. 
You confront the truth of God. You have to want righteousness and you have to want what's true and you have to make a choice daily to repent and grow closer, closer and closer to being in the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. We should look to him. And of course, we ask, what would Jesus do? That's a great model to follow. And of course, yeah, are you going to do it perfectly in this life? No. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But you should never give up the standard. The goal is sinlessness. There's never accepted sin. But as a believer, because God has taken your penalty, you can do it without condemnation. If Christ has paid for all your sin, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And that's how the best way to make people really righteous and have a community of people that are supposed to live in love and harmony, that you actually have a changed heart. You're a new creation in Christ. God has given you a new heart. And what does he do? He inclines you to want what's good. And then you have the problem of you do the things you don't want to do and you don't do the things you want to do. But if that's happening to you, it means God's changed your heart, that you want the right things now. And you know what? Just like any loving parent, and I see a few parents here, you will never hate your kids for messing up. And you know that. You love your kids and you will discipline them for righteousness and at the same time love them. And that's what God does to us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He has taken our penalty. He has taken our burden. And what we can do is work through our sin problem in a safe environment of being a child of God. That's what the church is set up to do, is to actually make people really righteous. And we are not called to compromise. We are not called to find a halfway point between the world and what God wants for us. We are supposed to live that way all the time. Now, that's the church. What is the state supposed to do? Okay, And here's where we get to, as we think about the election time, the state has a very clear job, and I'll give you some theological gobbledygook uh, from the Latin gobbledygookus maximus. Of course, uh, you can look that up if you want. Find out that God set up civil government to take care of the other people, right? The people who don't want, they don't want to do what's right, so they need the threat of the sword, the threat of punishment to restrain evil. That's why God set up human government. Turn with me to the book of Romans. Chapter 13. I want to talk about a couple of things because God has not eliminated his law. Why? Because what is the law of God? Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. That's what he said. The law of God is perfect, the scripture says. The law of God is always useful. Why? Because what is the law of God? Pretty simple. God is a holy and righteous being. And when he declares what is right and what we ought to do, it's based on his holy nature. It's just an external expression of God's internal holiness. There's nothing wrong with the law of God. The problem is with us and we don't keep the law. So when you're not a believer, Galatians 3.24 says the law is a school teacher that leads you to Christ. It stands over you. It can convicts you. It condemns you. And it says you need a savior. Drives you to the gospel. And then you think, how then shall we live? Well, guess what? The law of God. He's told you what's right and wrong, properly interpreted for today. It is didactic. It is a light unto our feet, right? And a lamp unto our path. 
It's God's righteousness showing the way. So what is the state supposed to do? Look at Romans 13. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise for the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. For if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the, for, bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of, because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. Uh, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due to them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Paul says clearly the institution of government is a minister of God. It is a servant of God. Now, we want to be careful to understand that just because, every, for example, everything that calls itself a church is not a true church of God. Okay? They may not be following what God says a church ought to do. They may not be preaching, preaching a true gospel. Just like when we look at human government, it's also under God. And God has set it up and God has authorized it, but human governments can also go bad. They can have unrighteous laws. They can do injustice. And those are the ones that no, there's no need to obey those. Now, of course, you'll have to fight it. You'll have to overthrow it. But this is why when we look at it, God has set up the institution. We are not here to be anarchists. We are here to make sure that there is order in society and that those who intrude on our rights will be punished. Now, so we look at government. It's there. It doesn't bear the sword in vain. And there are a number of other texts where we, we, we talk about these things. Genesis 9, 6. If you shed man's blood by man, your blood will be shed because he's in the image of God. They're there to mete out justice for those. Now, so government is there to do what? Okay. Government is there to do this, to restrain evil and to make sure that true freedom is established. Freedom to pursue God. Freedom to do the things of God. That's what freedom is. It's for freedom that Christ sets you free. Don't return again to the yoke of slavery. When we talk about today, you hear the word freedom, rights, all of these things. People want to use them and define them in some meaningless secular way. I mean, what is freedom? I can do anything I want whenever I want. No, you can't. There is no right to do whatever you want, whatever you want. Same thing. I have a right to chicken done right, right? That's supposed to be funny, but that's okay. So, all right. Point is, everybody's claiming all sorts of rights. Even today, you hear the Prop 8 commercials. It's a fundamental right to have homosexual marriage. How many of you have heard that commercial, right? Yeah. And of course, it's just, it's, it's a big nothing. Where do rights come from? God. What is a right? Romans 13, we just looked at it, says, For there is no authority except from God. No authority a right, just like in John 1.12, we talked about, about as many as received him, to them they gave the right to become children of God. 
even those that believe on his name. Those two words are very closely associated. And in many cases in the scripture, they're the same word, exousia. Why? Because authority and the right go together. Think about this. When you say I have a right to do something, you're saying I am authorized to do this without consequence. That's what a right is. Okay. And I also, I'm authorized to prevent someone in intruding on what I'm supposed to be doing. We, we divide this up in laws, what's called positive rights and negative rights. Okay. All rights come from God. Bible is clear about that. All authority is in God. Only God can permit you to do something without consequence. That's it. What's a positive right? It's the authority to make a demand on someone to do something for me. That's a positive right. What, by the way, and there's only one other kind, and that would be the negative rights. Okay? What's a negative right? The authority to prevent someone from intruding on your positive rights or doing something to you. That's it. So when you look at the law of God, you look at how we live in community, and we'll just do a, you do a quick study of the Bible, you find out where rights come from. Maybe you think about the concept of a marriage vow. Who has the duty to take care of you, to feed you, to clothe you, to protect you? The, the one with whom you've made a covenant. The one you've agreed to do that with. Husbands and wives, you've made an agreement to love one another, to take care of one another, to enter into a biblical marriage. You do have the authority to demand that the other party do what they agreed to do and provide for you and take care of you. Your children are in covenant with you by generation. When you have children, you have made a covenant with them that you will take care of them, you will provide for them, you will mentor them under God. That's where positive rights come from, from covenant. And we see this throughout the Bible in God's description of family. What are negative rights? You see those mainly in the area of criminal and civil law. Criminal law, the right to life. Murder is wrong. Why it intrudes in my right to keep existing in the life that God gave me. You have a right to demand that people don't kill you in an unjust way. Okay? Or in any way, if it's unjust, I should make that clear. Uh, not just in unjust ways. But the question is, in all these things, is why? Because God has made you in his image, and in the end, every single one of you are going to have to answer to God for your life. So when we look at these, how these ideas are infused into the U.S. government, at least the way it was supposed to be originally, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, among them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, you may want to notice that, remember, all authority comes from God. Government cannot give or take away rights. All they can do is recognize real rights that we have and make sure that they are protected and that they are enforced. Number two, why, how can anyone say all men are created equal? Now, of course, that includes all mankind. Because aren't there, you know, big ones, little ones, fat ones, thin ones, you know, uh, you know uh, different colors, shapes, genders, everything else. So what makes us equal? See, that's one we better be able to answer, right? That we are all equal before in the law because we're all of equal value. And what makes us all equal is the fact that we're all 
in the image of God and have the same capacities that make us in the image of God. All the other things are incidental. Uh, I mean, I, I'm glad I don't have to be equal to everyone else because I can't do a stitch of music. The only thing I play is the CD, okay? And that's it. So if it takes that function to become equal, then, then we're all dead because nobody's equal. But it's because God has made us in his image. We recognize that all people are supposed to be treated with the same law, with the same justice. It's supposed to be blind. The one race, the human race made in the image of God, there's one law for all. That's God's law. So when we look at the nature of government and we look at how it's supposed to work, we just go back to some basic principles. God set up government. It is a divine institution. It is not a secular institution. It is supposed to be under God. God is a Christian God. He is the, there's one true God and God actually thinks Christianity is the one true religion. So God, when he sets up a nation, what does he do? He wants us to live for him like we're designed, but we fell and God separated us into nations. So you can all your homework assignment, go read Genesis 11, the tower of Babel story again. Because of great evil, God separated us in different people groups for many reasons, but we don't have time to go into. One reason is because if one nation goes bad, you can immigrate. You can leave it and go to the better one. But if you have a one world government that's evil, where do you go and how do you change it? That's the problem. So God is brilliant. Diversify. When you're evil, separate them out. Now, we follow that principle in the U.S. government by a separation of powers. Don't give any one person too much power. Why? Because the heart of man is evil and incurably sick. Who can understand it? Never give one person too much power. So we have separation of powers. And when we look at these things, how they're supposed to work, uh, we see that God himself has set up what? the ruling institutions. It's funny how little groups of people, even though they're selfish and sinful, they will recognize what's right to defend them against those other people who want to take them away. And then all of a sudden you have a recognition of the law written on their hearts according to Romans 2. See, God's brilliant. He, he just worked it all out until Christ comes back. So we have these governments set up. But let me show you how it's supposed to work. Are the church and the state supposed to go together? No. We see God's paradigm for church and state in Israel. And without going into it, it's, it's a false idea that's perpetuated among us that the church and state were together or God's people, the, the, the institution of redemption and the institution of justice were together. That's just not true. In Israel, the king did the king's business and the Levites did the Levites' business. That's it. But both were under Torah. Both were under God. Remember what happened when Paul tried to, or not Paul, Saul tried to do sacrifice. He was condemned. Now turn with me. We're going to have two more passages and I'll land the plane here, okay? Uh, we're ready to go. I think it's been about three hours now, so we'll go ahead and uh, uh, move on. But I hope you see, again, this idea of what the government is supposed to do. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, you should know this story. Uh, it's always uh, it's good. We, we teach it to our children. Uh, we, hopefully we shout it through the housetops. But when we, we look at these stories, it, it's the follow-up of David and Bathsheba. And what we see in 2 Samuel chapter 12 is the importance of why we keep the church and the state separate. Why the one that gives gospel and the one that does justice are separate. Because... 
The people of God, the redeemed, are supposed to be able to confront those who have the sword in their hand and beat them back to real righteousness if they think they get too haughty. Now, you know the story, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, one rich, the other poor, and the rich man had a great many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. He would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in the bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock from his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And then David's anger burned greatly against that man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely that man who has done this deserves to die. And he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did not, he did this thing and had no compassion. And Nathan said to David, you the man, you're the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, it is I who have anointed you king of Israel. It is I who deliver you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your care. And I gave you that house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword and the sons of Ammon. And therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken your wife Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. The prophet of God went and confronted the king. And what was the king supposed to do? Repent. You're supposed to follow the ways of God. The house of justice and law, the house of gospel and confronting evil. That's how they're supposed to be separated. That's how they're supposed to work together. And of course, when we see this, we, we fast forward about a thousand years in scripture. Last passage here. Turn with me to Acts chapter 16, and we want to see how Paul used the idea of good government and citizenship to further the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because when we look at why God set up the state, how does God, does God think Christianity is true? Yes. Does God want his gospel to get out? Yes. So what is the state supposed to do? Restrain evil and not intrude in the church's business to make sure it can go fulfill the Great Commission. But it is not neutral to right and wrong or true religion. And this is why historically, again, every person from the beginning of this nation, called, we called ourselves a Christian nation. All the Christians in the history of the world were trying to have Christian nations. Why? Because every nation and where the Christians were, where non-Christians ran the government, by and large, they were all persecuted. They're put to death. They were, had their books burned. They had their children taken away from them, and they wanted no part of that, or they were put to death for heresy. Recent example, then we'll go back to the biblical example. How many of you have heard of Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer? How many of you have not? How many are not sure? Okay, just check it. 1517. Now, this is a Protestant church. That word doesn't get used very much anymore. Now the generic word is evangelical. But we are Protestants. We believe the Bible is the final say. We believe justification is by faith alone, by scripture alone, by, to the glory of God alone, by grace alone, all the solas. This is what scripture says. Martin Luther was a Roman Catholic monk. And what he's trying to do is reform the church. 
Now, why is it that he succeeded when other brilliant men had failed? John Wycliffe, maybe you've heard of him, right? He founded the Bible Translation Institute, right? Yeah, John Wycliffe, light of the 13th century. Why did he fail in reforming the church? Answer, because he was put to death before he finished it for heresy. Why did Martin Luther succeed? Well, one, God gifted him with a brilliant mind and an absolute bulletproof dedication to the word of God. But when the Roman Catholic authorities, want, they ordered the, his, his prince, Frederick the Elector of Saxony, to hand him over for a heresy trial. The Elector of Saxony said, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to provide him freedom to proclaim the word of God. It would not allow him to be put to death. And what do we see? The preaching of the word of God, justification by faith, the grace of God, the clear message went out again. And we saw, we saw it revolutionize the world. He wasn't allowed to be put to death. So what we were doing, we were freely proclaiming the gospel. The Holy Spirit was working through the word. And we saw a reformation followed by revivals, followed by great awakenings because of freedom and an undying dedication to the word of God. This is what we saw. Uh, Luther was not more or less brilliant than Wycliffe or anyone that came before him, but he had freedom. And the government protected the gospel and made sure it went out. Paul used that as a tactic as well. Paul in Acts 16, and this will be the last one I'll look at, truly. In Acts 16, Paul used his Roman citizenship to his advantage. And it's a long discussion that can be had on this, but the issue is, is that actually Roman law was actually pretty good if you were a citizen. The problem is most people weren't citizens, so they had lesser rights. We're the ones that recognize rights are made because we're in the, from God because we're in the image of God. So Paul did what? He used his citizenship to his advantage. In Acts 16, just to summarize it, uh, what we've got is a psychic friends network traveling around, okay? And in Acts 16, there's a certain slave girl having a spirit of divination. Paul said, what? I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out. The spirit came out that very moment. And verse 19, when her masters saw that her hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them in the marketplace for the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates and said, these men are throwing our city into confusion being Jews and are proclaiming customs that it's not lawful for us to accept or observe being Romans. They're engaging in hate speech. Throw them in jail. Yeah. By the way, that's next for us if we're not careful. And the crowd rose up together against them and the chief magistrate tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them in prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains were unfastened. And when the jailer had been roused out of his sleep and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm. We're all here. 
And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And he said, Go out, go to a church, and then get confirmed, and then do enough good works, and have faith, and like, do that until you die, and then you'll be saved. Oh, oh, sorry, no. Sola fide. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved, you and your whole household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in the house. And he took them that very hour at the night, washed their wounds, and immediately was baptized, he and all his household. Now here's the punchline here, Paul using his Roman citizenship, using making sure that the government is going to protect his right to do God's ministry. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God and his whole household. And when the day came, the chief magistrate sent their policemen saying, um, <laughs> release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the chief magistrates have sent to release you. Now, therefore, uh, come out and go in peace. But Paul said to them, hey, they've beaten us in public without a trial. Men who are Romans, hmm? Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now they're sending us away secretly. Uh-uh, take off, brother. No, indeed, but let them come themselves and bring us out. And the policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Hope you note that when they heard that they were Romans. Because when you are a citizen of a righteous kingdom, you are authorized to do what's right. And people are not supposed to, without consequence, take you beat you, suppress your speech. They are not supposed to do that at all. So what did Paul do? He says, I know this is church state thing and, you know, government and church. We're only with the church. We shouldn't be involved in government. No, he pressed his constitutional rights to freedom. And what did he say? Verse 39. And they came and appealed to them. And when they brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. And they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia And when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. There is story after story in the book of Acts of Paul using his his protections from the Roman government as a citizen to further the gospel. And you know what? All authority is given by God. The king is supposed to be in charge. But guess what? In the United States, in a constitutional republic, you're the king. So when we look at this, you can either decide you want a nation that has true righteousness and is one that will protect true religion or you're not going to care and you're going to leave it in the hands of people who know not God, obey not the gospel of Christ and and they don't care about us. What they want to do is silence us. So the question is this, what will you do in this generation? Will you do what the Christians have been trying to do forever because they understand God's purposes, try and form Christian societies because that's where you want to live. And any person who comes in it, they'll see righteousness done properly, hopefully. You'll see God's rule of law. You will see love and compassion. And you'll see the church functioning as it ought. And that's when all goes well. When it doesn't go well, what you've got are Christians fed to the lions. You've got... I want you to think about this. How long did it take to go from Reformation Germany to Nazi Germany? Not long. What it took was a liberal church. You started out with Martin Luther's Reformation. 
Then it was weakened by liberal theology. They, they scrapped the Bible and went into all sorts of junk. That weakened the moral fiber of the society and its dedication to God. Then what happened? A couple of wars. The last one, of course, there was a, a problem internationally, politically, and they punished Germany probably beyond what they needed to do. So people are desperate, and what happened? A Hitler arose and said, let's go out and take it all back. Now, here's the problem. How are you going to condemn that unless God is overall? How are you ever going to say what Hitler did was wrong unless there is a God who is the source of all law and righteousness and says, I don't care what a constitution says, I don't care what any law says, that's wrong and it needs to be punished. And that's why God set up other nations to punish other nations when they go wrong. God punished his own nation, the nation of Israel, when it went wrong by sending Assyria and Babylon to punish it for a time. And what happened with the Nazis? We had the Nuremberg trials. Why? Because God set up at that time when we still somewhat had the, uh, uh, the framework of a Christian government. They set up the Nuremberg trials and tried the Nazi war criminals. And they, of course, the, the Nazi war criminals were saying, you cannot condemn us because there is no law beyond our state. Okay. And what did the prosecutors say? They said, no, natural law. God made the world. God wrote his law in our hearts. There is a law above the law and you're condemned by it. God set up governments to restrain evil. So my question to you is today is, what are you going to do about it? If you want the gospel to get out, if you want freedom, if you want it for this generation and generations to come, get busy. If you want to see us devolve into persecution, if you want to see us devolve into all those things that we hate, do nothing. So therefore, I know what you want to do. You want to follow God. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Psalm 33, 12. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and loving kindness. Lord, you know our hearts. You know us better than we know ourselves. You know, Lord, each and every person here and their commitment to you. God, I pray for all of us that you would move in us with your spirit. You would cause us to repent of any sin that we've committed. And Lord, if we have been harboring certain sins as strongholds. I pray right now, if there's anything displeasing in us, your spirit would convict us and move us to get rid of it, Lord, and that we would be pleasing to you. We pray for our nation. We pray that you would raise up people, Lord, who love you. And Lord, because your word says that the government is your institution, we know you have called people, you've given them a vocation to work in that realm. I pray you will raise people up, you will raise more preachers up, that your righteousness and your will be done and it would start here and now with us and that people would look back on this era and they would say this was the beginning of a new great awakening. This was the period where righteousness prevailed. This is a period of new reformation. So God, let us look to you in all things. Work in us, give us freedom, but especially, Lord, help us to be righteous in you as we seek you with all our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you.